Thank you for joining the Capital Church Podcast. We believe that Jesus is for you and that through these expressions of our community, you will find hope, healing, and belonging. To learn more, join us live every week online and visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at When I prayed over you guys, I have sensed that, um, number one, God is doing great things, but there are a lot of us that are in the middle of a struggle. And so I'm going to ask this question, and this is rhetorical. Don't raise your hand. Don't look at your neighbor at your left or on your right, right? Um, don't pretend this is not an issue. This is, this is a question for all of us here in this room. And the question that I want you to think about for just a couple seconds, some of us are not anxious. Some of us are a little bit more anxious than others. Um, have you been afraid at all this week? Or maybe the last few weeks. I just want you to, I want you to think about that question. Some of are like, no. Well, just think about it. Have you been afraid? Have you been anxious? Have you been stressed out? Um, some of us here today on a personal level, you might this week, maybe you had like a, a nagging thought and that nagging thought conspired with another nagging thought. Some of you have experienced this before. And then those nagging thoughts kind of work together and they snowball, right? And then they turn into something bigger and we call that fear. And maybe some of you experienced the, the paralyzing consequences of fear this week. Uh, maybe for some of you, uh, you oversee a business and you're worried about your employee or you're worried, worried about maybe, uh, maybe your profit margin, whatever, and, and you have some concern. Uh, maybe you're not an anxious person, but you're concerned about the future. Or maybe some of you here in this room, you're concerned about a relationship and you don't even know where you stand. Uh, some of you, and this has been my, if you've, if you've heard my story before, uh, maybe some of you, this is what I've experienced in the past, maybe some of you, you, you had a symptom, you Googled WebMD, and then you self-diagnosed yourself, and you have four incurable diseases today, okay? And I know we laugh at that, but that's, that's a real thing for some of us. And I'm not trying to make light of it. I've experienced that before uh, in the past. So many of us were... were Man, we're, we're experiencing a lot of different, like, weird stuff, struggle, fear. My, as your pastor, my, my concern for all of us is how do we live in the digital age that traffics in panic? Fear, guys, fear is currency in our world, right? We have, we have media conglomerates that, that exploit our fear for profit. And I'm not a conspiracy guy, okay? If you're a conspiracy guy, we live in Idaho, so there's a lot of that going on. <laughs> God bless you, okay? I'm not that guy. I'm just saying um, I, 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 there are a lot of different dynamics right now that are playing on our fear. Now, I get it. Fear is, is not a new thing. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. But I want to talk today about how we can move out of the grips of fear and into uh, the movement of the Spirit, into the, into the purposes of God. Let me say this really quick. I also think, and I just want to scale this up a little bit more, um, if, you, if, if you're online at all and you're watching what's going on, some of us are concerned about the world. Right? Some of us are concerned about 
uh, the Middle East. We're concerned about global politics. We're concerned about um, economies and, and the threat of war. And man, we are concerned even about the state of the church. Can the church, I sense this, guys. There, there are people that are, that are assuming that, man, I don't know if the church can really make a difference in this world. And there's, there's, a, there's a disquietude in the church, and there's a, there's a heaviness. Some of it is because we're struggling. Some of it, we're, it's just, it's cold outside, okay? Some of us, we're just, we're looking at the world, and we're like, oh man, how much agency do we have? I mean, we talk about power on Sunday, but man, Wednesdays suck. You know? This is just pastor talk this morning. How do we move from, like, the grip of fear into the purposes of God. And that's where we come to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28, Jesus speaks to his disciples. Now remember, in this setting, Jesus this is the first part or the first third of the first century. So you have um, unimaginable violence proliferating. You have uh, the imperialist cult, which is a propaganda machine that's like overseeing all the mediums of communication. Then you have the Roman Empire looming in the background. It's in this setting that Jesus claims, please hear me, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And then he tells his disciples to go into all the world. He uses three participles, but they're, they're verbs, they're imperatives, whatever, right, Chris, be quiet. Um, go, teach, and baptize. Go into all the world, teach, and baptize. And then Jesus offers an astonishing promise. I will be with you to the very end of the age. So, in the next 26 minutes and 6 seconds, there are three things that I, today I want to talk about. Number one, Jesus has all authority. And if we don't believe that, please, please hear me. If we don't fundamentally believe that Jesus has all the authority, then it will undermine our, our understanding of who God is. And it leaves us vulnerable to fear, loathing, and anxiety. Two, I'm going to talk about the role and the status of the church in the world, which is um, how do I say this, which offers hope to us today. In other words, the church, you and I are God's beacon of hope to the world. And then finally, number three, the promise, is what I'm gonna talk about, the promise that God is with us. And this promise addresses that irreducible core fear that everyone has in this room. And it's this, I'm alone. It's funny, when I was uh, four years old, my aunt told me this long time ago. She said, Chris, I saw thousands of kids, and you were by far the worst kid I've ever seen. <laughs> my mom would go to sleep praying for me that I would not go to juvie one day. So I was, I was a really bad kid. Um, one day, I was being really bad. We were downtown Portland. We lived there four years old. My mom had two young um, daughters. And um, she had to take care of them. Well, I wasn't listening to my mom. We were at like a mall area. I remember it was a very traumatic moment in my life. I get into um, an elevator and I shout at my mom and she says, come here. I'm like, no. And the door shut. And my life felt like it was over, right? 
I go up. I don't know. I, I go somewhere. I come out. There's just people all over the place. And I'm, I'm four. And I'm, 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 I'm like, I'm just crying. I'm weeping. It's a really cool story about how God miraculously brought me back to my mom. It was, it was amazing. Two men came. I'll just say it really quick. Two men came. And they didn't even know my name, but I remember them saying, hey, Kristen, which you can't, you can't call me Kristen, okay? You call me Chris. You talk to me. That's my full name. They didn't know me from Adam. They go, Kristen, we know where your mom is. They took me directly to my mom. I remember seeing my mom running to her, crying. My mom turns around to thank them, and they're gone. It's an interesting story of God's I don't care what they were, who they were, God used them to bring me back to my mom, right? The point that I want to make is I remember it's so traumatic that I still remember it. I still feel that moment. And what was that trauma? It was I felt like I was alone in that moment. There are some of you in this place that you don't realize that your anger and this kind of the way you idle in life and some of the passivity that you have and some of the deep fears that you have can all be traced back to, I feel like I'm alone. So we're going to deal with that. Number one, Jesus has all the authority. This is shocking for Western modern people. Jesus claims authority over every sphere of reality. So everything from hey, nations, everything from economies, uh, the private sector, bodies, Jesus is saying, these are his words, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. It kind of sounds like Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So when we come to the New Testament, the New Testament um, offers us this unfolding vision of Jesus ruling over the universe. We talk about the good news. We talk about the gospel a lot in church services like this. When we talk about the good news, what are we saying? We are saying that Jesus right now in space and time is ruling all things in the universe. And yet the New Testament goes a little bit further, and I love this, and basically says, if Jesus is not Lord of all, Jesus is not Lord at all. All authority. Think about how expansive that is. In heaven and in earth, all spheres of reality or domains of reality belong under the loving authority of Jesus. So Jesus is not just Lord of heaven, disembodied souls, a private religion, or even just Lord over the Sunday morning experience. Right? And yet many of us think that Jesus is just Lord over this service. And when we go to Monday, it's like, ah, God's not there. Or when we come to Wednesdays, Wednesdays are really hard for us. And we're like, we're at a place of work. And we're struggling with our relationships and with our boss. And we have stresses. And we have so much on our plate that we got to do. We're like, God, where are you? Right? And if we're not careful, we can succumb to the idea that God is limited in his authority when it comes to temporality, when it comes to spaces and places that we're in. Jesus, however, claims, and the New Testament claims, that Jesus is Lord over all domains of reality except for an NFL team that I will not mention that is playing right now. Okay, let's move on. I just, I hate them. Okay, Lord, all right. 
quickly. Over 200 years of enlightenment thinking runs deep in society, however, that rejects this understanding of the authority of Jesus. So we, we, we see the world in two stories. So imagine a house that has an upstairs and a downstairs, but no staircase. So the upstairs is heaven, it's God, he's a grandfatherly figure, we keep him in the attic, that's whatever, right? He's upstairs, away from everybody else. We people are down here in the basement level, and there's no way that we can get to God, and there's no way God can get to us. This is a split-level worldview, this is a, a, a cosmological take of the world. This is what has shaped American thinking over the last 200 years. The problem is, is there's no staircase. God, we so spatialized God that he's 46 billion light years at the edge of the universe, up in the attic. Every now and then we hear echoes of his voice. Every now and then he speaks maybe a loving word to us, but he does it from the attic because somehow he is not with us. This is how the world thinks. Now imagine if an entire generation has been taught this. Imagine if an entire generation has been taught Darwinian theory, which has disenchanted our world, that God doesn't exist, that we can explain this world by chemical processes and slipstream stuff and whatever. We can use it all the way back to 12 billion years. Why are we surprised that downstream that we have an entire generation filled with anxiety? Because as every honest atheist philosopher will tell you, you remove God, all you're left with is fear, loathing, and anxiety. Even Thomas Jefferson famously cut up his Bible, reflecting this two-story like construct or way of seeing the world. He took his Bible and he said, moral teachings of Jesus, good. Miracles, no, not good. That's upstairs stuff. Jesus teaching on prayer, that's good if you keep it to yourself. And then he goes, well, if God is announcing something like the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, that ain't okay. So pray to yourself, good. Kingdom of God language here on earth, not good. He continued, if God helps people save souls for the next world, that's good. But God working in the public sphere or domain, that's not good. In fact, the French Revolution had an anthem, Vox Populi, Vox Dei. Voice of the people is the voice of God. Essentially, are you still with me? I want you to understand why we think the way we think. And people believed from that statement that God had been banished up into the upstairs and that humans had the responsibility to take care of everything else. The problem is when you banish God, you create a cultural social vacuum and there will be demonic powers that will feel it. And then you'll have people and politicians and powers that will carve up God's world for their own benefit. So this led to the cutting up of reality. So we have sacred and secular. We have faith and we have science. We have church. We have state. We have discipleship and we have work. So many people here today, you, you come on Sundays and you experience the presence of God and you want to be a good follower of him, but it's very difficult how to connect that with Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday and your work. 
I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but I think a lot of people are uninterested in God because the church has not bridged that gap between discipleship and one's gifts and work. Some of you just don't find God that exciting because you don't believe God cares about what excites you. And what God has put on your heart, your gifts matter as a follower of Jesus infinitely in the scheme or the scope of salvation history. So all these fears that I talked about that we've cut up reality, they're they're considered irreconcilable fears or non-overlapping magisterium. Okay, Chris, whatever. Okay, I won't say that again. But here's the thing. The church has also gone along for the ride. We also, in some ways, have got caught up in thinking that this is how the world is. So in, in a way, we have put God in a theological box. Our God, in other words, please hear me, is too small. Which works out like this. Jesus can forgive me of my sin, but he can't help me with my mood on Monday. Jesus is present on Sunday, and when I wake up in the morning and have my private time with the Holy Spirit and read some scripture, but he's banished somehow from my place of work. Or Jesus can heal my soul, but he can't heal my body. And so the church has gone along for the ride. And yet the stunning vision we find in the New Testament revolved around the authority of Jesus and the claims of Jesus or the sovereign claims of Jesus over creation tells us that Jesus is not Lord of just a part of this world. He is not just Lord over souls and heaven and forgiveness. He is also Lord and sovereign over money and politics and cancer and soil and quarks and light and anxiety and the Middle East and everything and every domain and every sphere of reality one day will claim that Jesus is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords and every knee shall bow, politician, business person, authority figure, mom and dad at the name of Jesus and will decree that he is Lord. And I know the objection to that is, well, Chris, we see disease. We see bad stuff, war. I just want to say this. Jesus has won the initial decisive victory over evil for all time at his cross and through his resurrection. Jesus bodily came back from the dead and claims authority over a wrecked up, broken, upside down world. And because Jesus is a God of love, he's not going to annihilate it. Which means he has the initial victory, but because he's a loving God, he's waiting for people to come to him. 
And so when we see signs of disease and when we see signs of trouble, when we see signs of wickedness, that is not a referendum against the sovereignty of God. It's a sign or evidence that God is still at work uprooting evil and sin. And one day he will gather it all up, all that evil, and he will make all things brand new. Please hear me though. When I talk about the lordship of Jesus, we're not talking about a theocracy. We're not talking about authoritarianism. We're not talking about a celestial bully in the sky who wants to squash human dignity and to squash individual rights. When we talk about Jesus being Lord over every sphere of reality, we're talking about a God who out of sheer love for you and I confronts oppression and everything from the world, the flesh, and the devil that enslaves us and squashes our individuality and squashes the purposes of God in us. You see, even C.S. Lewis said this, that every second God is claiming every square inch of creation and every second the Satan or Satan himself is counterclaiming the claims of God. Yet God is sovereign over all things. So we can breathe. When we sink into this and we, we come to a conviction that God is ruling in every sphere, this leads us then to number two. It gives us a fresh perspective and a new awareness of the possibilities of God's people in relation to the world. So number two, the church is a beacon of hope. Jesus tells his disciples to go. He says, Go. Why? Because he has all authority. But before he tells the disciples to go, Jesus tells them in Matthew chapter 5, you are salt of the earth, you are light of the world, you are a city set on a hill. Verse 15, Jesus said, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Several thoughts. Number one, um, Jesus is assuming that God, his father, is over every public space. He's assuming that you and I are going to have interactions with people that are of the world. Uh, number two, Jesus assumes that bunker Christianity, please give me a good amen on this, is not an option. We're not called to huddle and cuddle. I know we live in Idaho, and there's probably a good chance that some of you have a bunker. No judgment, just don't tell me, okay? However, you have a cache of weapons, and the apocalypse is going on, and I need something, I'll just come and find me, okay? Anyways, let's move on, all right? But bunker Christianity, this idea that we got to escape the world, right? All these bad things are happening. I can feel it in, in the world of church, that we're sensing the weight and the heaviness of the moment. And if we're not careful, we can start to critique culture to such an extent that we start to remove ourselves from culture. And so we come up with a bunker Christianity. We get our spiritual iodine pills and we dig really deep and we live away, not just from the world, but from our calling. Because number three, Jesus doesn't say be salt, be light, be a city. He says, you are. You are salt. You are light. As a church, we are a city set on a hill. So Jesus doesn't use the imperative. He uses the indicative. 
which implies identity. You and I, in other words, and here's the, here's the problem. Many of us, when we look at this passage, we're like, okay, when I get my life together to a point of almost perfection, then I can be light to the world. And so what's, the, the problem with this passage for many people is that we think of it as a command. God is not commanding us to be light. In other words, once you get your act together, then I, I might use you every now and then. No, what God is saying, this is who you are. This is your story. This is your identity. This is our status in relationship to the world. And you can't earn it. You can only live from it. Bonhoeffer said this, to flee into invisibility is to deny the call. Any community of Jesus which wants to be invisible is no longer a community that follows Jesus. You and I are light of the world. You and I are salt of the earth. Salt, when you don't have salt, you, you know you don't have salt. You hearing me? Some of you, you're weird, you burn your steak. And the only way you're going to save that burnt, steaks need to be medium rare, okay? Here's just a spiritual lesson. Don't burn your meat, okay? Medium rare, but if, you, if, if you're not a medium rare person, you burn your steak, what do you need? You need salt. Isn't it funny? That's a weird illustration. That was from the Holy Ghost, okay? Right, whatever. But you can feel the absence of salt. Why? Because salt is distinctive. And there's a distinctive quality about salt. We are called to be a distinctive centrifugal force. In other words, an outward moving reality force that is filled and shaped by God's love and his goodness and his grace and his wisdom and his beauty. We're called to bring beauty back to an ugly world. We're called to bring forgiveness back to a world that is filled with guilt. We are called to be a community of freedom where people are enslaved by the flesh, the world, and the devil. And God wants to work through us because this is who we're called to be, to bring, to partner with the Holy Spirit, to bring the freedom that God wants to bring to so many people in this world. God wants to bring justice. God wants to bring life. God wants to bring his truth. He does it through his people. You, 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 you. Not just me, not just a speaker, not just a professional, not just someone who has like a big nonprofit like corporation that's doing big things. He says, you and I are light of the world. Not just prophets, not just priests, not just kings, not just presidents, you and I. And this is what I love about Boaz. Boaz in the book of Ruth, he's extraordinary. He's a remarkable figure. He has a great name. Someone needs to name their kid Boaz, okay? But he's remarkable. Guys, he's, he's remarkable in the fact that he was simply a wealthy business guy. Wasn't a king, wasn't a prophet, wasn't a poet. And yet he just... As a sheer act of generosity, sees a woman named Ruth. He helps her, serves her. They eventually get married. And out of their line 
great, 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 whatever, grandson, King David comes. In other words, it wasn't a king that saved Israel. It was Boaz, a wealthy businessman who out of several acts of generosity changed the entire arc of Israel's history. We usually think God just works with the preacher. God just works with the worship guy. God just works with that person because they have charisma. No, God wants to take your gifts and through your generosity, through your light, through the talents that God has given you to change and make a difference. This is, what, hey, this is not new. Our church, this is what I love about my parents. They have preached this for decades. I love my dad. In the mid-90s, we had Michigan, we had long shorts, we had Chris Weber. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. It was the straight mid-90s. It was an amazing time. God spoke to my father, and he felt like we were supposed to, as a church, to start a national prayer center in Washington, D.C., and he did it courageously, and he went out. And he gathered and mobilized pastors and leaders and students and, in, and interns to go to our nation's capital, the center of power in the world, to go pray for senators and congressmen, not just Republicans, but also Democrats. It was a bipartisan, let's just pray. Let's not even go and lobby. Let's just pray for our senators, and let's believe that God's going to do something in their hearts. And there are story after story after story after story after story after story of God moving the hearts of senators and congressmen and congresswomen simply because a pastor from Boise, Idaho, had a sense that we needed to go and pray for our nation. This is what I love about Dress for Success. We have this incredible organization which is all about empowering women in this business climate to be who God has called them to be. This is what I love, foster and heart and all the things that they're doing with fostering kids that are coming out of broken homes. You can't tell me that God has not called us to make a difference in this city. I talked, I recently talked to DT. He was at first service. We had a wonderful conversation. He's a bright young man that has a nonprofit that reaches the homeless community once a month. Come on, don't tell me the church isn't doing anything. I love what Signature Roofing does all the time. Once a year, they just, they just want to bless the community. They have these huge events, and they just offer free stuff to people. Right? What does that show? That shows the generosity, the generosity of the kingdom of God. The transformative genius of Christianity is the practical, outworking love of God. It's not just that we're great politicians or skilled in a certain area. It's that we, we recognize from the very roots of our faith that God has given us talents. And we're called to steward those talents, steward the gifts of God through his love and through his goodness to bless the world. Finally, number three. Are you guys still with me? How do we move forward in the world as a community then? How do we really make a difference? How do we overcome those Thoughts that conspire with other thoughts that snowball and become bigger, more fearful thoughts. How do we overcome the anxiety of our age? How do we, how do we fight the good fight of faith, especially when we're in a struggle right now and really live from what we're talking about out of Matthew chapter five? I think the answer is really clear. God is with his people. In other words, when we come to the conviction that God 
is with us. It sets us free from idling and passivity and the deep fears that keep us from moving into the life and the purposes of the kingdom of God. God with us. In fact, the gospel of Matthew, the major theme begins in Matthew chapter one. He states, he declares a Isianic prophecy. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and have a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew 28 ends, and behold, I am with you. Jesus tells his disciples to the very end of the age. We say this often, but if God promises to be with us to the very end of the age, then certainly he can be with us to the very end of the week. Or in our hellish moment. Or when you're in the car and you're weeping and praying and asking God to help save your marriage. Psalm 139. If you go to the farthest parts of the world, God's there. When you even make your bed in hell, God is there. I think when we come to a conviction that God is with us, it unravels, or I'll say this better, dismantles the logic of fear and anxiety in our life. I think I'm coming to the conclusion, this is just for me, maybe it's not for you, but as I study scripture and I've just studied a lot of literature on anxiety and fear, I have come to a conclusion that a big component of anxiety and fear for me has been theological. I felt that I was alone. So how is God with us? What does this mean that God is with us? In Genesis, as I close, 28, you guys still with me? God appears to Jacob in a dream. This is Genesis 28. Jacob's a liar. He's a fraud. He's just cheated his brother. His brother wants to kill him. It's a twin thing. We experience this a lot at our house, right? Twins just, ah, it's like. So Esau wants to kill Jacob. Jacob is running away. He's exhausted. He falls asleep. God appears to Jacob in a dream. Jacob sees a stairway connecting heaven and earth. And so he sees this ancient temple. He basically sees a ziggurat, right? And so in in the ancient world, temples uh, were places where people would encounter the gods. And at the top of the temple, you have what they would call the cosmic mountain. And that's where the gods lived. So if you wanted to meet the gods, you had to ascend the temple to meet the gods. What's remarkable about this dream in verse 13 is that Jacob does not see God at the top of the cosmic mountain, but he sees him at the bottom right next to him as he sleeps. Remember the stairway? Many of us think that stairway is broken or it's not there, or somehow God's at the top shouting some nice things down to us, some encouraging words, but he's largely not with us. We see God come down right next to the ladder as Jacob is sleeping. And then God says in verse 15 to Jacob, I am with you wherever you go. So Jacob doesn't have to climb that ladder to get to the top. God bypasses all that frenetic, frantic, angelic activity. And he comes to Jacob while he is sleeping. This is a picture of grace. 
This is what makes Christianity different than any other religion. It's grace. Every other, this is a snapshot. I know there's come back to this. I get it, but just hear me. Every other religion essentially tries to get into the cosmic mountain. We got to do it through certain rituals or liturgy or works. Christianity is about how God has come to us while we were sleeping. And then Jacob wakes up and says, surely God is in this place. And I did not know it. What Jacob has discovered as I close here, I'm going to pray for us, is not so much that God is in that particular place. It's rather that God is where Jacob is at all, at all times, at all places. That God is at our places of work. God's in every space. He's in the car. He's with you on Mondays. He's with you in that struggle. He's with you right there. Not up there, right there. Come on, somebody. Not way up there, right here. Not, right? Come on, you hearing me? Nope, 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 nope. Stop it, stop it, stop it. Not, not up there, right here. Not up there, right here. He comes to us. Well, I feel like I have to pray and get God to do something. Well, do you know that desire to pray is God actually working in your heart to spend more time with him because he's drawn close to you and he's been sitting there the whole time and he just wants to talk to you, right? When we discover this, it sets us free. So much, I love this, Jacob calls the place that he is sleeping Bethel, which means house of God. Remember, verse 15, I'm done here. You guys are amazing. We're gonna go home, watch great football, whatever, but just bear with me. Jacob calls the place that he's sleeping Bethel, house of God. Verse 15, God says, I'm gonna be with you wherever you go. In other words, God is saying, Jacob, wherever you go, I'm gonna make it a Bethel. You go home and sleep, Bethel. When you go home, Bethel. When you go to your work, Bethel. When you go to the grocery store, Bethel. Bethel, Bethel, Bethel. It's powerful. In other words, God is with his people. Psalm 23, verse four. It says this, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me, your rod and your staff that comfort me. Joshua 1, 9, as we close. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This is the word that the church needs. I'm tired, guys, and I'm sweating like a madman. It's not, it's not me, it's the lights, okay? I, I, this is a prophetic moment. The church needs to hear this word again. God is with his people. This doesn't mean his people are perfect. Can I get an amen? This doesn't mean that we, we can't call some things out. There are some things in the church that we need to call out in truth and grace and love, right? This is not a triumphalist message where the church can't do wrong and we're just gonna ride over people, we're gonna do our thing, no. This is simply a message to the church to be who God has called them to be. We are in an incredible strategic moment in human history. God is calling us higher. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to give towards this ministry, learn more about our church and events, or are in need of prayer, please visit capitalchurch.co.